0: Senate Health and Politics, a show about the day's emerging public health issues and the intersection of politics. Your hosts are Kyle McGowan and Amanda Gamble. So, Kyle, it's been a little while since our last podcast. Do we uh, do we have a good excuse? for uh, Well,
1: I mean, the excuse is we've been busy uh, in a good way. Um, you know, business is good and we've, we've just been busy and, um, you know, but... We've also not had a ton of things to talk about, and we're going to nerd out today on a couple of different topics, which is great. Happy to be back. Um, You know, in the meantime, since we last had our podcast, we've both got our first dose of the Moderna vaccine. That's right. Which is great. Um, I'm a huge baby, as I think I've said on the podcast before, when it comes to getting vaccines. Uh, I didn't pass out. I didn't die. I actually barely felt the vax uh, the actual shot i will say i did have some light minor side effects my arm heart hurt so bad the next day i will say but it only lasted for about a day and then it went yeah. back to being normal so that's all fine you know having a sore arm or chills and you know that those are tend to be the um most often people say that they have those uh, symptoms and mm-hmm. that's all normal so right. everyone should if you, if you get the vaccine and that happens, don't worry 24 hours later you'll be back to normal.
0: Yeah, the arm definitely was uh, was sore the next day, I have to admit but otherwise I felt you know for the most part pretty normal. How did you go about finding your vaccine?
1: Yeah, so here in Georgia I was it was funny we have a friend of ours who runs a pharmacy like a at-home pharmacy for, for elderly where they deliver their meds. And at the end of the day, you know, this was about a month ago, he had an extra dose, and we were excited. You know, my wife was going to get it, and, you know, we had this in where we were going to, you know, get the vaccine before <laughs> anybody else. And then the next day, the governor announced, like, anybody 16 and older can can get the vaccine. So I I actually, through the CDC's website, uh, vaccinefinder.com, uh, you can find locations near you that have the vaccine and then you know so I went to the pharmacy at Kroger you just click on the Kroger that you want to go to and then make an appointment. Mm-hmm. And it's good because you can make the appointment for your first vaccine and then they go ahead and schedule your vac- your appointment for the okay. second dose mm-hmm. as well.
0: That's great. Yeah, I had a pretty similar experience also used vaccinefinder.com and you know it was Kind of hard to find vaccine in this in our area where we live, just sort right. of north of Atlanta. In those first few days after the governor lifted restrictions, but ultimately was able to find um, a Walmart near near my house that had them. And, and the experience actually was great. It, I was in and out in literally under twenty minutes, which yeah. I thought was really impressive. Yeah, and didn't feel the shot at all. I was really <laughs> I don't like shots or just needles. Period. If I can help it. So yeah, plus it was nice to like have it done at a at a like a a grocery store, like kind of like you did and yeah. get a little shopping done too, you know, like a little two for one kind well, of deal. The way,
1: the way they had it set up at the, where, where I was in Kroger, they had everybody kind of sitting out and I was there for, you know, 15 minutes. And the only reason I was there that long was because you have to wait a little while to make sure you don't have a, a yeah. reaction. And, you know, I was sitting there, I was like, oh, all these people can see me. Don't cry. Don't pass out. Don't cry. <laughs> don't pass out. But I mean, it was, you know, like getting the flu shot didn't hurt at all. She was had already stuck me and put the band aid on me before I even knew.
0: Um, so did you get a band aid? Mm-hmm. I had this thing like she put it on my arm. It was like circular, and she put the needle into that it, and then just pulled it out.
1: I don't know what they did.
0: I don't know what it was because I didn't look. But um, <laughs> yeah, I was I was because she stuck it on my arm first, and I was like, "What are you doing? You didn't you didn't stick me yet." So yeah, I don't know like if it's like some newfangled kind of yeah. cool band-aid for getting shots but you know i just got an old
1: school band-aid but you know one thing i I did notice i was reading the uh uh, in a wall street journal article yesterday about how effective the vaccine is and and the cdc did a a study and found that out of out of 66 million americans who have had a completely full dose of the vaccine only five thousand eight hundred people have gone on who were fully vaccinated to actually get COVID. I, I it's hard to describe how big that is. That is point zero zero eight percent of people who got vaccinated would go on to get COVID. That's better than 90% of vaccines on the market. Like this is this is huge. Mm-hmm. Um that this fact the vaccines that are currently on the market are so effective
0: it's it's pretty amazing i mean even the you know the trial data that that these vaccines had isn't it didn't show that that high level of effectiveness Right. right and we did talk about this at one on one of our earlier podcasts about how you sort of look at the effective Rates differently when you're in a clinical trial versus when you're actually, you know, looking at the general population following vaccination. Right. So the fact that this is higher is just, you know, more testament to the fact that, you know, these vaccines are so effective. And safe. But since we're talking about vaccines and efficacy, safety, all those things, I think it's uh, pertinent to talk about what's going on with the J&J vaccine.
1: Yeah. So earlier this week, early in the morning, the CDC and the FDA put out a a statement pausing all, uh, you know, everyone that was scheduled to get the the J&J vaccine because they discovered that there were symptoms in a very few people of blood clots. And we're talking about you know, six people out of nearly seven million doses given. And I mean, a one in a million uh, chance of getting these very rare blood clots with the J&J vaccine. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the CDC and the FDA, you know, I, I think did the right thing. And, you know, because the news were, you know, were talking about these blood clots and, you know, pausing the... There was a, a committee that met the very next day on Wednesday, a CDC panel to discuss, of outside experts, to discuss... Uh, What needs to be done with this vaccine moving forward, whether it comes off the market, whether there's restrictions, whether, you know, the the, the risk is uh, worth uh, taking. And, you know, they're meeting again next week to determine, um, Mm -hmm. you know, I've heard folks say they're hoping it's going to be days and weeks, not weeks or months, that this is off the um, market. But we'll know more uh, moving forward. But I think it's important to understand, you know, every vaccine, every, uh, you know, procedure has some risk. And, you know, it's important to understand that the Moderna vaccine and the Pfizer vaccine are both two shot doses. Very effective. It's great. It's wonderful. And so I know there's a lot of folks saying, well, we've got these two other vaccines on the market. Let's not worry about J&J. And from a raw number standpoint, yeah, that that's okay. But the J&J vaccine played a huge role in getting vulnerable populations vaccinated. I heard a, an ER doc talking um, earlier this week that like they do during flu season, they started making and offering the J&J shot to folks who had come into the ER for completely different reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, as just a part of the uh, process of coming into the, the ER for whatever. At the end, they say, have you had your COVID shot? No? Okay, we'll go ahead and give you a and j vaccine if you, if you want. And it was a way of reaching, because those folks were never going to come back. They're not coming back in 30 days to get their second dose. So it was very valuable to be able to reach those hard to reach populations. And also in, in rural areas of the country where it's hard or difficult for folks to, you know, either come to a pharmacy or, or whatever, you know, the, the supply chain is, is difficult. You know, it was easier to use the J&J vaccine. So it's important that the CDC and the FDA figure out what's going on and then discuss how we get this back in the market.
0: Yeah, um that that kind of hits on one of the things that I wanted to touch on today too, which was you know, what is this going to mean for the continued vaccine rollout? And I think you kind of touched on it already. You know, there's there's plenty of vaccine that will be available for the, you know, full adult uh, population here in this country, right, and you know vaccine doses we've just seen this dramatic exponential uptake almost over the past uh, you know four four and a half months and I just wanted to kind of touch on those numbers real quick because I just think they're so remarkable and a testament to you know the hard work of those you know at the c d c and in our public health departments across the country who have have done, you know, incredible work to actually make sure that we got shots in arms. And so in December, we only had 3.6 million people vaccinated in January, that was almost 30 million in February, that was almost 45 million in March, it was over 76 million. And halfway through April, we're at almost 45 million people already vaccinated this month. So we're looking at probably 90 or more million in the month of April to be vaccinated, which is I don't know about you, but I didn't think that was going to be possible. Um, If you'd asked me in December, when was I going to have my first shot of vaccine? I would have said summer at the
1: earliest. Yeah, I mean, we both thought and and told folks that we thought it would be early summer before, you know, a lot of Americans were able to have access to getting the vaccine and, and so happy to be wrong on that. And, you know, another thing that's great, you know, you look at seasonal flu vaccination rates tend to be, you know very low some in some places Mm -hmm. i mean we've already surpassed what the average seasonal flu rates are for vaccine for vaccinations and continuing to go up this is all great great news
0: yeah and i hope we'll have some lessons learned to kind of as you mentioned about the flu we need to get our annual flu vaccine rates up in this country um, across the board not just in the adult population um, but in you know across all age groups Um, so hopefully we're going to have some good takeaways on how we can better reach those um, who don't or are, you know, hesitant to to get a flu vaccine on an annual basis. Um, and since you mentioned, uh, you know, uh, kids, I want to talk a little bit too about vaccines for children because at this point we haven't had one uh, available at the mar- on the market, um, and we don't have one yet. But it looks like we're we're going to have one relatively soon. Pfizer, excuse me, Pfizer has requested an EUA from the FDA to expand its COVID vaccine to adolescents. It's a smaller range age group, just 12 to 15. But that's, I think, really important to get, you know, especially uh, that middle and high school age group, uh, hopefully fully vaccinated or close to it, you know, before the, the new school year starts. So that's really encouraging. They had, um, impressive results from their phase three clinical trials, which showed that the vaccine was safe and 100% effective. Can't get any
1: better
0: than that. 100%. <laughs> uh, very impressive. And so, you know, the, the those regulatory, you know, governing bodies at CDC and FDA are going to be meeting in the coming weeks to review that EUA. But hopefully it's a timely discussion so that we have, you know, the time we need over the summer to Really ensure that, that kids get the vaccine they need.
1: Yeah. And, and you know, taking a step back, talking about, and, and you know, this is Pfizer that has asked for that that EUA. Yeah, that's right. And And I think it's important to describe that there are two different types of vaccine on the market right now. And I will go ahead and apologize. Political science major here. We're about to have <laughs> chemistry lesson, biology <laughs> lesson. And so we're going to dumb this down for people like me. But I've had a ton of people, family, friends, um, you know, ask, you know, I, I've heard vaccines, you know, it's it's got this thing in it called mRNA, it changes your DNA, it, it it, you know, gives you live virus, so you know, you can get COVID from it. Both of those things are completely false. Not true in any way. Put down whatever you're reading on Facebook, please. Get your information from the cdc and actual public health people and not the google so um, we want to talk about some of the the differences in the two different vaccines on the market right now you have the astrazeneca vaccine which has been approved not in the us but in other parts of of the world and the j and j vaccine and they are both what are called vector vaccines then you have the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccine, which is the two-dose vaccine. They are both uh, what's called an mRNA vaccine. And so the two different vaccines on the market, we're going to start with the J&J vaccine. And so it's a vector vaccine is, is you know, when we say vector, we just mean it uses a different way of getting into your body to produce proteins. So at the end of the day, both of the vaccines do the same thing, which is to produce a protein, a spike protein that COVID has. So if you imagine COVID as a a bubble or a ball, the proteins on the outside of that ball are what connect to cells. So what both vaccines do is they send a message to your body to produce just the protein, not the whole ball, just the little spikes of protein on the outside. And that is enough for your body to build up an immunity so that when you're exposed to the actual whole virus, the ball, you already have immunity, right? Again, you
0: already have things on your normal healthy cells that inhibit that spike protein on the actual COVID uh, virus from actually invading your
1: cells. That's right. And so the whole point of both of these two different styles of vaccine is to deliver that message of what protein your body needs to produce, right? right. So a vector a vector vaccine uses a and vector vaccines have been around since the nineteen seventies. It uses um a virus, yes, a live virus, but not COVID. It's it uses an adenovirus. And through science. We are able to take certain portions of that non-COVID virus, an adenovirus, that usually makes you... These are the the, the viruses that are kind of like the common cold, right? They, they give you cough, sneezing, you know, fever. They're able to take the proteins and the actual, you know, parts of that virus that make you sick. Take them out because the whole point is you want that virus to come into your body and deliver another part or another gene that is attached to that adenovirus and then your body starts producing not the the adenovirus but the protein that is attached to it so i know this is all very sciencey but the difference in that and the mrna is it uses a synthetic rna material to deliver that message of which protein uh, to start building And so it's, it's instead of using a live virus, neither one, neither, neither one have live COVID and neither one changes your DNA. And none of them have a microchip put in by Bill Gates to track you. Sadly, I have to say that in a podcast because people believe there's a microchip in vaccines. Sadly.
0: I've been asked that question as well. Um, but I want people to ask questions right. so that they can know what is actually true. Yeah. But, but get it from a trusted source. <laughs>
1: exactly. So thank you for bearing with us on the difference in the vaccines. But it's very important to understand that both of them are, are safe. And, and, and what the CDC and the FDA are doing right now and looking at these blood clots that are one in a million. Is important to make sure for, you know, make sure there's not a, a bigger um, reason to stop this uh, J&J vaccine from being used.
0: Or also just like what risk factors exactly. might be at play for those who seem to or may be susceptible to those to those types of clots. Um, so, I, I mean, I think it's important and I'm appreciative of the fact that they've been fully transparent. Um and trying to help people understand um exactly what is going on. I hope it I hope people appreciate that versus being scared or you know, more hesitant right. um to take the vaccine. Exactly. I know that there's it's probably easier to do that or easier said than done. But yeah. um hopefully folks will continue to to go out there and to, to get vaccinated.
1: Yeah. Well, I think we're we're gonna pivot to our next nerd topic, right? Of the budget.
0: Yeah. Okay. I'm excited. <laughs>
1: Nerd alert. Yeah.
0: <laughs> um, so last Friday, the president released his what they call skinny budget, which is only the, the discretionary side of spending. So it's that spending that isn't mandatory or that autopilot must spend money, which is the way that we fund all of our major health care programs, Medicare and Medicaid, uh, and also Social Security and a few other programs. And so what's kind of interesting about this is it's really just more of a messaging document than anything else. There weren't lots of, there wasn't lots of specificity like you would normally see in a budget proposal. But obviously this administration has been a little busy, so this isn't too um, unsurprising. And they've said that they're going to, you know, release more details later on. But what we really want to talk about is the fact that, you know, the president is, has put forward this proposal to very much increase discretionary spending especially non-defense discretionary spending so he's proposing one and a half trillion dollars in in spending on discretionary programs with real quick let's yeah. let's
1: dive into discretionary and non-discretionary like it kind of a little more detail for for the folks out there listening because it it is important that when we're talking about the the pie that is the budget we're talking about the discretionary side is billions while the you know, so, automatic spending is... So the
0: discretionary spending, at least, you know, in this proposal, which is not too far from what it currently is. Right now, it's about $1.4 trillion in discretionary spending. Mm-hmm. But when we think about the mandatory side of the house, yeah. that's getting pretty close to $3 trillion. With a T,
1: trillion. Right? Yes.
0: And that's money that, in order to change the way that it's being spent, Congress is going to have to pass a law. And
1: these are Social Security... Medicare and Medicaid. Got it.
0: So none of the uh, fun or sexy topics that legislators seem to be interested in and in trying to make changes to. Right. Previous administrations have typically said, we promise not to take away your Medicaid or to cut your Social Security. Right. Those types of things. but. I'll I'll get off my high horse in just one second. But <laughs> because we have an aging population with baby boomers now aging into Medicare and Social Security, those programs are only on a trajectory to get bigger and bigger and bigger year right. after year. And so, a lot of critics are going to talk about how this budget, this discretionary budget that Biden has proposed is, you know, it's it's way too much new additional spending. We can we can kind of argue around the edges around there. But right. when we talk about a budget problem and a spending problem, it's really on the mandatory side of the house, right. not as much the discretionary. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't still be fiscally responsible. But let's go ahead and, and dive into this a little bit more. So just a little bit of context, because remember, this is coming on the heels of the American Rescue Plan, which included a $1.9 trillion And so that's more than your entire discretionary annual budget for the entire federal government. And the administration has also released a $2.3 trillion infrastructure plan.
1: And infrastructure is used very broadly from what I've read.
0: Yes. Infrastructure apparently can be, oh man, I forgot the words that they used. But it seems like basically anything that could be related to work of any kind. Yeah not what we would typically think of as infrastructure, which is transportation roads. and roads and bridges right. and things like that. But we won't go there because that's not public health. <laughs> so, <Right. laughs> but you know, I wanna I wanna separate I, I'm trying to help make a little bit of a distinction here because even though there's been all this new funding, there was a lot of funding for public health and both the American Rescue Plan Act, which was just passed about a month ago now, and then the CARES Act from last year. It's really important from a public health standpoint to have funding in that that annual appropriation bill included in that discretionary funding bill every single year in order to be sure that we are prepared. And unfortunately we've learned the lesson that we weren't prepared previously mm-hmm. um, as COVID has So clearly demonstrated. And so this budget is already trying to make the selling point that it's including the largest increase for CDC in almost 20 years. But I personally feel like it's missed the mark in some ways and overselling the investment that it is proposing.
1: Well, let's go through some of those areas where, you know, I I think increasing in money for public health is great and wonderful. But as you said, it needs to have sustained funding moving forward. But it also needs to be for the right things, right? Yeah.
0: I did want to just provide a little bit of context because while this the administration is selling so much on like putting additional money into public health and to you know, HHS, Health and Human Services, the vast majority of the budget creases proposed are not concentrated in public health. They're, it's actually in education and commerce. Right. So it's proposing an almost 41% increase in the Department of Education and a 28% increase in the commerce budget. So HHS is third on the list with a 23% proposed increase. So just keep that in mind as you hear the talking points in the coming weeks and months about how great this this budget is for public health. So, you know, and I think it's also just fair to say that it's not terribly too, it's not too surprising that we're seeing that type of funding increase from this administration right there were in, basically no investments in the department of transportation and others simply because a lot of you know the, those investments they're planning to include in the infrastructure bill but digging into hhs they're proposing tw- an additional 25 billion for the entire department which is about a 23 24 percent increase from the last year for cdc specifically they've been in- called for a 1.6 billion dollar increase. And while that would be the largest increase in as I mentioned in almost 20 years, they're proposing a 9 billion dollar increase for NIH.
1: Yeah, from, that's what, on top of what they already have, which is what 50 something billion?
0: Oh, so this right now they have around 40 so This would put them close to 50 billion. This will put them above 50 billion. Right. So and just to put a little bit finer point on it, the total C D C budget that they are recommending is eight point seven billion, including right. the increase. Compared which to is... the C
1: D C or the the NIH is fifty one billion. Right. Yeah, and well I, I think we need to pause here for a second and say, I love the NIH. They're yeah. great. The people there are wonderful. Their mission is key. It is so important what they do for health and public health. They are, and I think it's important to describe the two sides of the house here, right? You have the NIH that's the research side of the house, and it takes a lot of money to find cures for things and find ways of, you know, I always say this world is a scary place, you know, when it comes to germs and viruses and disease. The NIH is very important in making sure that we have the tools, the vaccines, the, the, the ability to fight the scary world we're in. But the CDC is the implementation side that actually goes out and fights the, the scary things in the field and helps public health. And that takes money too
0: mm-hmm.
1: to implement and to make sure that the states have the ability to use uh, data and use the new techniques that, you know, the NIH and others may come up with. But mm-hmm. it's important that both should be relatively equally funded, mm-hmm. in, my, in my belief.
0: Mm-hmm. And I, I think, well, first of all, I should thank you for helping to pull me back a little bit because I, I was getting a little bit passionate there for a second. Um, but a lot of politicians that I have found want to be able to say and take responsibility for I, the cure. Right. I am the one who helped to ensure that, you know, this, whatever it is, disease yeah. or cancer, what have you, um, I'm the one that helped to find the cure, or helped fund the cure, however you want to say it. And less are willing to put that cure then into action, mm-hmm. um, which is a whole other can of worms.
1: Yeah, well, because with public health and the CDC's mission, when they succeed, you don't see it. Mm-hmm. Right. You only you only see public health when when there has been a breakdown in in public health. Right. And that's not I wouldn't call it a failure. I mean, it just these things happen. Mm-hmm. But, they, you, you know, you're you're talking about cures for diseases. And like you said, the sexy things that people want to take credit for, you know, data isn't sexy. Right. But the CDC needs infrastructure and money. Mm-hmm. Uh, to do their job. And a lot of that revolves around accurate, quality, yeah. real-time data and things like that. That's just not as sexy. Yeah, I get it, but it's needed.
0: Well, the other thing that I want to touch on too is, you know, the way that CDC is funded, we have to kind of continue to reiterate the fact that 70% of what ever comes into the CDC is actually going out the door because they are the ones who are actually funding the nation's public health infrastructure. Right. It's not like it's all going and just sitting at one agency and they're getting to invest in, in various things as Congress has, you know, determined. And NIH and, and does a lot of, a, a lot of sending money out too. And they do a right. lot of investment, you know, in research and in academic institutions and that type of thing. And all of that is good. It's just that there needs to be sort of this right sizing, if you will, kind of like you mentioned, yeah. um, and both the, Research and development part, but also the implementation part. Right, because it's that implementation part um, that's what's going to help protect us in the long run. Yeah, at least that's the hope. There were a number of other, you know, invest or you know, items called out from a public health standpoint. And I'll touch on some of those just real quickly. Uh, one which is near and dear to our hearts, which is the Ending the HIV Epidemic Initiative, got an additional six hundred and seventy million proposed in this budget and. They have included an investment in climate change, which we all expected to, to be coming, and also in gun violence research, which you can argue one way or the other. Um, I think we have our opinions, but I think it's good that you know we're continuing to at least from the CDC standpoint, we need to be doing and continuing to collect all the data that's necessary around gun violence, just as we get a better understanding of what that right. looks like in this country. But one thing that I did just want to highlight, too, is that COVID has done such a good job of helping us understand and better appreciate the costs of not investing in public health. Mm-hmm. And so the, the increases that... This administration, I know, is going to continue to call out and highlight as their successes, as they should, just pale in comparison to how costly this pandemic has been, not only for this country, but for the entire world. And so, you know, we need to be vigilant in reminding ourselves that a billion dollars may sound like a lot, but at the end of the day... A pandemic costs much, much more right. in comparison. And is it worth not making that
1: investment? And, and this pandemic is not a once in a lifetime event. Sadly, this this pandemics will continue to occur, and the the best tools we have to prevent them are all around public health. Yeah. Well, I know we've we've kind of talked a lot about the the budget today, and I, I think it's important to to really understand that you know, this is a budget. It's a messaging document. I can tell you nothing in this will pass as is. It will change in some way. Numbers will go up. Numbers will come down. Numbers will go to zero. You know, this is a completely just straight messaging, kind of a political document by the White House. The one thing that these types of budgets are good for is it shows priorities. And clearly, the Biden administration is showing that HHS, CDC, NIH are extremely important to them moving forward, and money, more money will be coming to the CDC, HHS, NIH, and, and others in the healthcare space. It's more of how and in what amounts, but it's, it's clear through this, this uh, budget that that is a priority, certainly, for the Biden administration moving forward. Well, that's uh, all the time we have for today. Remember to stay classy, stay healthy, America.